Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Rebecca Morse. To summarize what Rebecca does, I'm going to quote from her webpage. She's an expert in weather forecasting systems and risk communication with an emphasis on high-impact weather, including hurricanes, floods, and tornadoes. And her current research foci include the communication and interpretation of weather risks, the use of weather-related information in decision-making, and weather hazard prediction and predictability. End quotes. Rebecca's PhD is in atmospheric science. In fact, she and I are old friends because we were in the same graduate school cohort at MIT back in the 90s. Her thesis work was about how to choose where to make targeted aircraft observations to best improve a weather forecast. So this was a straight physical science topic, not fundamentally different from mine in its disciplinary orientation. But Rebecca knew already that what interested her, really, was the interface between scientific information and its use by people. And since then, that's where her focus has been. For more than 20 years, Rebecca has been at the Mesoscale and Microscale Meteorology Laboratory at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, where she's now a senior scientist and deputy director. Most scientists at NCAR study how the atmosphere works. They observe it, they build computer models of it, and predict its behavior. And ultimately, we justify a lot of that work because the predictions have societal value. Weather forecasts save lives and property by allowing authorities to warn people ahead of destructive extreme events. But for the warnings to be effective, people have to understand them and know what actions to take. And compared to generating the forecasts in the first place, that last link in the chain, from forecast to life-saving action, has historically gotten relatively little attention, and that's where Rebecca's focus has been for nearly her entire career. Rebecca's research has advanced understanding of all the links between science and action, how forecasts are formulated, communicated, received, and acted upon, or not in some cases. A lot of this is social science, and Rebecca works with interdisciplinary teams where social science is critical. But what makes Rebecca almost unique is that she does this work while retaining her identity as a physical scientist. So we talk about the challenges around that, and we talk about why Rebecca focuses on weather instead of climate, and what the relationships are between the two. Our conversation gets concrete when we talk at length about two recent extreme events. One was Hurricane Ian, where over 60 people died in Lee County, Florida, due to an evacuation order that came later than it should have, according to the county's own guidelines. The other was the Marshall Fire, which happened in December 2021 in Boulder County, Colorado, incinerating Rebecca's own neighborhood and stopping just short of her house. It was great to get Rebecca's takes on what happened in these events and to hear her whole story. One of our themes here on this podcast is how science can be usable and societally valuable, and Rebecca has been facing that a lot longer than I have, so this was a real learning opportunity for me, and I hope for you too. So here is my conversation with Rebecca Morse. Thanks for doing this, Rebecca. Thanks for inviting me, Adam. My pleasure. Happy we can make it work out from across the world. Um, you're in Colorado, I'm in France, and we're at very different times of day. But it's daytime yeah. in both places. You might have better food there. <laughs> Maybe. Um, anyway, okay, so let's start at the beginning. Let's start with where you're from. Yeah, so I was born in New Jersey, and I lived there until I was about eight. And then I was raised mostly in Illinois near Chicago. Wait, hold on. I didn't know this about you. Where in New Jersey? Piscataway. Oh, all right. 
eight years old. So you remember it probably. Yeah, we actually spent a year in Europe when I was in Belgium when I was a kid also. So that was like a year before we moved. But yeah, I remember it. The French part of the belt or the The French part. Yeah. So you speak the language still? Not well, I did. I mean, I was fluent when I was a kid at a kid level. What did your folks do? How did this moving around happen? Yeah, my father was a professor at the time. So he was a professor at Rutgers. And so we went on sabbatical. He went on sabbatical for a year um, to Belgium. He had colleagues there. And it's kind of crazy. Like, I think back on it and I'm like, what were they thinking? So my parents had four kids and they just went to Belgium for the year. And um, I think the original apartment they had planned to rent fell through at the last minute. And so we ended up renting a house like in this small town, farm town. Mm -hmm. And so like we didn't have a washing machine, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so um, and it was like, you know, there were chickens running around and pigs and all that stuff. So. So the four sibling brothers, sisters, what order are you? I'm number three. Number three. And give me the genders of the age. Yeah. So I have an older sister. She's the oldest and an older brother. And they're just a year apart. And then me. And then I have a younger sister who's a couple years younger than me. And so none of us spoke any French. Like, I think they got us records or something that we listened to. And then we just went to this school, this like small country school. Of course, there were four of us and there were like, you know, 30 or 40 kids in the whole school. So we were a large proportion of the school. But yeah, no one really spoke um, English. And what's your dad's subject? Uh, He was a chemist. Is he still doing it? Is he still around? No, he's not alive. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, he retired a while ago. But yeah, so he was a professor. And then we moved. He got a different job, a research job. And so that's why we moved to Illinois um, when I was about eight. And, uh, and your mom, she was raising all those kids or did she? Yeah, no, she worked. I mean, she actually, um, my mother and father had met in graduate school and she had wanted to get a PhD. But um, I mean, I don't know the full story, but um, there was gender discrimination related to what she was doing. I mean, it was the era where um, like my mom wanted to be a biologist, but she majored in, you know, she was doing like home ec because that's what you did oh. like in the 50s if you were female. And so she went to, but she ended up leaving with a master's degree and yeah. yeah. And she, I mean, yeah, I think she always, she always regretted it, not regretted it, but she wasn't, it wasn't what she wanted to do. So when I was a, even when I was a young child, she was working part-time. Yeah. Um, And then when we moved to Illinois, she got a full-time job and she worked most of the time when I was a kid, mostly in different places. And then she eventually went um, back to school and got an MBA and went into management. But for a while, she was doing more like science, technology stuff with different companies. And then she went into science management. Science management? Who'd she do that for? What does that mean? Uh, I don't know, really. Um, no. Um, yeah, she worked at Argonne National Lab. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's yeah. where my father worked. And yeah, so um, I'm trying to think if she got, she must have. Maybe she got her MBA when she was already there, but she did one of those like, you know, uh, executive MBA programs. And then, you know, how a lot of these science organizations, they have scientists that manage, but then they have yeah. someone who actually like manages, manages, yeah, like yeah. does all the actual stuff. So I think that's more yeah. what she was doing. I mean, I didn't really, you know, as a kid, you don't really track that stuff. Okay. So Chicago, which is where I think of you as being from. Because I didn't know this. Yeah, I'm from the suburbs of Chicago. So, so give me the um, town name. Uh, Naperville. Okay, not that I know that's, any, that's any of them. A, but. Yeah, it's a western suburb. So I do run into people that know about it a lot because it's like a 
thing, you know, but um, yeah, yeah, my parents moved away a long time ago, so I haven't been back in a long time. Mm. Um, and, but I'm actually supposed to go back next week for the first time in a long time just to stop through. So that'll be exciting. Do you still have people there? I mean, your mom or your brothers and sisters? Or uh, no, no. Um, all my, all my family moved away. Um, my parents, my mom lives in Maryland now. Uh-huh. Um, and all my siblings live on the East coast. And you were there all through high school and everything? Yeah. Yeah. I was there all through high school. Were you into science early on? I was, you know, my dad's a scientist. My mom was a scientist. I was good at science and math and stuff. So yeah, I mean, I was, I actually loved weather when I was a kid. Really? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I had like a, um, a weather forecasting hero and when we would do, you know, career things, you know, my wait, parents. Is that a, wait, what does that mean? A weather for you mean somebody who was a weather forecaster was your hero or that was like a formal. No, no, he was a, he, like, like I had this book, you know, I found in the library about a weather forecaster on TV and his whole life story. And, it was somebody that you like a local guy that you watched. No, on? no, no, no. Oh. It was just a person, like a book I read this book and I had the weather calendars and stuff. Wow. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I really, like, I didn't know what it was about at all. You know, we had to do some kind of career thing. And my parents found like a friend of a friend, of a friend who was a meteorologist. And they, so I interviewed that person. And I think they worked at the airport, like helping with air traffic control or something. Oh, yeah. So I was just like, oh yeah. Like I didn't even know what people did with weather. I just, I thought it was interesting. Well, but that's, I mean, I feel like some fraction of the scientists in our field were weather weenies from an early age and some fraction weren't. I wasn't. Mm-hmm. But somehow I didn't have you pegged as one of the ones that was. Yeah. Well, it wasn't really weather weenie, I don't think. I just thought it was interesting. And I've never really like um, been like a big forecaster or anything. I think I just thought it was interesting. And so okay. like I just remember these things like and, and actually the reason I got into it again later in life was because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, especially when I was in college, I liked science and I wanted to major in science and I was good at science. So that seemed like a good idea. I took a lot of other classes. I was interested in everything. And then I worked, I was a chemistry major and I worked for a summer at a chemistry lab. And I was like, oh no, this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like, no. Too toxic Um, and gross? No, it was just like, I mean, I was just helping someone who, you know, like you put this thing in this and you measure this thing and then you sit there for a while and then you take the data and then you and I was like, oh boy, you know, not for me. Just Um, lab work, just the fact of it being. Yeah. I mean, there were other interesting things about being there. You know, I learned to program for the first time, all that kind of stuff. Even though we didn't use it, they were like, oh, let's teach people how to program. Was this at a like academic lab or a company or what? It was a company. So it was a company that was in my town, you know, where um, I got an internship for the summer. Right. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do. It was back in the days where if you, you know, didn't have a job, you didn't have health insurance when you finished college. So my parents were trying to direct me towards something that, you know, would um, put me on some sort of path. And so they're like, oh, you were interested in weather when you were a kid. What about that? I was like, oh, hmm, yeah, give it a try. So so this is like when you're in college as a chemistry major, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what's going to happen after. Yeah. So I took an atmospheric science class where I went to where I went to college. Which is where? Sorry. University of Chicago. Ah. Yeah. This would be in the in the early nineties. 
And there was very like when I went to talk to them, you know, they were like, oh, don't major in this, you know, major in some other science. And then if you want to do atmospheric science, go in grad school. And so the class I took, I think it was combined undergrad grad students. And there were like two teachers and one TA and three students or something. Because there's yeah. so little atmospheric science there. Yeah. The don't major in it, I still think, is kind of good advice, actually. Yeah. Um, so I ended up majoring in chemistry because I'd taken all the classes for it because I didn't know what I wanted to major in. And so I'd taken physics and math and yeah, chemistry. Yeah. And so I'd done all the requirements. Um, whereas mm-hmm. if I was going to major in, I don't know, physics or math or whatever, computer science, I would have had to take more of that. And yeah. so... I could spend my senior year taking electives. So, yeah. So you're getting out of college and then your parents say, what, what about weather? Yeah. Then what happens? Yeah. So it happened before that, actually. Um, I can't remember when I took the class in whether it was my junior or senior year, but I did that one internship, like I mentioned between my sophomore and junior years probably. And I was like, oh, this is not what I want to do. And I was like, I don't want to live at home another summer. (laughs) So (laughs) I better find someplace else to go. So um, my parents always wanted me to come home. So like that was their love, like, oh, we'll help you find an internship. So I was like, okay, I better apply for things elsewhere so I can go somewhere else. (laughs) So um, I think I was taking an astronomy class at the time. Actually, Ray Pierre Humbert, who you know, was probably was teaching it. Um, And so those were in the days before the internet. And so they just had like flyers, uh, bulletin boards up with stuff that you could do. It was not quite before the internet, but it was before everybody had the internet. Yeah, yeah. And before you could, you could, there wasn't like, there was the World Wide Web, but you wouldn't really look stuff up on it. Yeah, it was just starting. It existed. Yeah. Um, but yeah. you couldn't, you could find some things, but there weren't that many. Right, 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 anyway, right, right, right. so if you wanted to figure out what to do, you just sort of wandered around and looked at bulletin boards. And so I pulled like little flyers off to apply for internships right. from the astronomy building. And so most of them were actually space stuff. Yeah. Um, but one of them was at NCAR mm. in the high altitude observatory where they do, um, you know, solar physics and high altitude stuff. And so I got a few offers for different internships. And one of them was at NCAR in Boulder. And I actually wanted to do the other ones, but my parents said, oh, we hear Boulder's really amazing. You should go there and we'll come visit you. So I did that. And it, when I was there, I met other people who were doing things like chasing tornadoes. And yeah. I just had no idea anyone did this stuff. It was, yeah. I guess it was before Twister came out. And so I didn't <laughs> a little like bit, I, a little bit before. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, you know, you just, I had no idea. All I knew is that if you did weather, you could work at an airport or something. Right. So um, I didn't really, I wasn't really in, that interested in the research I was doing that summer. It was like chemistry applied to the upper atmosphere, but I heard what other people were doing and I was like, oh my gosh. So because of that, I knew you could go get a degree in atmospheric science and I um, applied to graduate school when I was still in college because that was when my parents were like, what are you going to do? And I was like, oh, I'm going to take a year off. I don't know. And they're like, okay, well, you better have a plan because we don't want you roaming the world aimlessly forever. So yeah, I applied to graduate school and the National Center for Atmospheric Research is run by a consortium of universities. And they have a list of the universities that have graduate programs in atmospheric science. So I looked at that list, which was like 40 schools at the time. And I said, oh, I've heard of this one because someone I met this summer went there. Oh, that's a place I'd like to live. And that's how he decided where to apply. 
First of all, I mean, I'm impressed by, I mean, you wanted to get away from home, but you, I'm impressed by your relationship with your parents. They had a lot of advice that you took. <laughs> not everybody would have, not everybody yeah. would have done that at that age. But, I mean, I wouldn't put it that way, but yeah, yeah, it's a good way to think about it. And also I didn't know that you had worked, I mean, you work at NCARD now, so I, I kind of didn't realize yeah. that this was your second stint there. So well, what was the stuff sure, that you really. learned about that was, that was exciting that, you know, that was not what you were doing? Besides tornado yeah. chasing, or was that it? I think that was, I just had no idea. Like, um, you know, when I got there, I didn't know anyone. So, and it was, again, before the internet. So you just got on a plane and you showed up someplace and you said, here I am with a bunch of strangers. You know, I was sharing a house with a guy. We wouldn't even do that anymore, but just a stranger, right? And yeah. so you had to, like, do something, I guess, with your free time. So, um yeah, so there were, um, I think the program I was in was undergraduates, but like the person I was sharing a house with that summer was a grad student and there were other grad students there. And so they were kind of, you know, actually um, doing research and, and visiting NCAR. And so just through that, you know, I met people and heard about what they were doing and just, um, yeah, I just remember people like they were doing like modeling or observations of storms. Yeah. And I thought, wow, I didn't even know you could do that. But I mean, I think, you know, this is true, like for our generation, I mean, I'm slightly older than you, but it's, I mean, I similarly like didn't know anything about the field and got into it through random yeah. ways, but I don't think that's true anymore. You know what I mean? I don't think the kids yeah. today, it's not just the internet. It's they, partly the internet, but it's also that the field is way higher profile now. Do you think? Yeah, I think that's true. I also think there's just a lot more, I wouldn't say mentoring, but trying to get people into things. Like, I think that, you know, when we were undergrads or even in a, as a grad student, we didn't go to conferences that often. You know, now if you're no. an undergrad and you'd be interested in this, someone's going to pick you up and say, oh, you've got to go to this conference and you apply for this. Really? Maybe it's only at certain places where they're trying to, you know, encourage like retention. Yeah. I never went to a conference. I did do research as an undergrad, but I was no good at it. So how long were you in car? For just a summer? Oh, just a summer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you went straight to grad school after one summer or no? Or, uh, or no. So I, I was there between my junior and senior years. And then I went back oh. to college and then I applied to grad school. And okay. so that's when I got into grad schools and I went and visited and decided where I wanted to go. And then I took a year off and I wasn't really sure if I was going to go to grad school. Okay. But it kind of got my parents off my back. And I had that option. And then, you know, during that year off, I said, oh, I'll do it. And so then I went a year later. What did you do during the year? Um, I traveled. Um, so I went to Europe for three or four months with some friends. So that's like why my parents wanted me to have something. You know, they didn't want me to be yeah. wandering through the world forever. Um, yeah. And then I like went and stayed with a friend and I worked as a receptionist. And then I went to um, Washington, D.C. and worked as a intern in a congressional office or in a in a House of Representatives committee oh, for okay. about six months. Which one? What committee? It was the House Science Committee, the Energy Subcommittee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right after I left, that's when um, the House had been Democratic for many years and then it changed over to Republican. So a lot of the people I worked yeah. with weren't there after that. Um, but it was a really fascinating experience. And I always wanted to do something that was science, but also useful. And so I thought, well, gosh, policy would be potentially interesting. 
I had a friend who had done the internship the summer before in Washington, DC, you know, working mm-hmm. for something and just like, Oh, you should try this. And so um, I wanted to give it a try. And when I was there, there were things I liked about it, but I was like, Oh, this is not the career for me. Yeah. And so I said, well, I'll go back to grad school and, and see from there. So when you went to grad school, we were in this, we were both at MIT. I was a year ahead of you, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So actually when I went to visit, I talked to different professors and I actually wanted to do climate change research, like climate policy. Because of the house thing or how'd you? Uh, I think I wanted to do science that was useful. And I was like, oh yeah, this is an important problem. It's something you could do that's useful. And so that was kind of what was in my mind. And I don't really know how I came up with, I guess, I don't know how I came up with it. It was before, that's kind of maybe part of what led me to go to do the congressional thing to see what that was like. But for whatever reason, when I was talking to people, I was talking to grad students and, you know, professors, for whatever reason, what Carrie Emanuel was doing, it just seemed like a better fit. And then all the, there were a couple of grad students, different places, MIT and elsewhere, who had done climate policy dissertations. And it was just so hard back then. It took them forever. And it was so much work. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'll just see. So, um, yeah, so... um, for whatever reason, I you know was interested in working with Carrie, but you didn't really get to choose. They picked your advisor for you, but I said who that's who I was interested in working with, not having any idea what I would do. Um, but yeah, so he was my advisor from the beginning, and I had a fellowship the first year, so um, oh, uh-huh. I didn't really have to do any research, I think, because I wasn't being paid off of a grant or anything. So I had right, the year to right, yeah. Even if out. you were, they didn't really, yeah, yeah. They, didn't care. They, they knew that kind of the first year was a loss for yeah. most people. So, I mean, yeah, they picked for you, but they kind of listened if you, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm uh, sure. if you had a preference. So the wanting it to be useful, mm-hmm. is that something that you was with you from the beginning or where did that come from? Or, you know, what you said it was, it came before, it preceded the Congress yeah. things. So you were obviously something of a science person, yeah. Um, but yet, you know, did that... Yeah. I think that's a good question. I mean, um, cause not everybody had that at that time. I mean, yeah. And even now. Yeah. I think some of it just came from my family and from myself. It was things I, something I wanted to do, you know, when I was finishing college, um, when I was in college, I thought about doing something like, you know, going to graduate school in psychology or sociology. Um, When I was a kid, I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher, which seems crazy now. Why? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Why? <laughs> That's, why would you want to do that? I think I, when I was younger, I no, think I... I mean, I, why does it seem crazy? Oh, I mean, it's a hard because, job, but I mean... Yeah, it's such a hard job. And I think just like, gosh, I don't want to deal with people all day. That's what's the best thing. One of the best things about being a scientist sometimes. So... Um, yeah, I feel you. Yeah, I just think I had this idea about doing something that was useful in the world. And I think things like being a kindergarten teacher felt to me like really hands-on, like you're really helping people maybe, or same with, you know, like being a psychologist, like you're Mm. counseling people and helping them or working in social services or working with the homeless, or those are the kinds of things I thought Mm. about doing. Mm. Um, Had you done anything like that or? Yeah. I mean, I'd done like volunteer work and I mean, I babysat Mm. a lot, you know, that kind of stuff. But you made this decision not to worry about it for your PhD because your PhD, as I recall, and as you sort of alluded to now, was not particularly 
I mean, I guess it was sort of, well, why don't you say what it was about and, and how it, yeah. yeah. So um, the idea is it was originally pitched to me, actually it's kind of timely right now since Hurricane Ian just happened, but um, was that if you have a storm that's coming, that might affect a lot of people, um, where do you take observations to improve the forecast so that you can help people make better decisions? So it was really about reducing the impacts from extreme weather events and thinking about them coming and saying, where would you take observations? And they, they do this in real time now. They've done it for many years, but you know, when a hurricane is coming and they're worried about where it's going to affect people and they know that a better forecast can really help people understand their risk and evacuate, they fly planes mm. through the storm and around the storm. So um, that was the kind of stuff I was doing. Um, and so I wanted to have a piece that actually looked at what you would do with the improved forecast. How do you know which forecast you should be improving? But no one really knew how to do that. So I left it until after my PhD. I just decided to finish. I did take some random classes while I was in grad school on other things. Like I took a science policy class. I took a law class. I audited a class at Harvard on sustainable development, international. You know, I was just trying to figure out what the... Mm different options were. And they did have a technology and policy program at MIT that a couple people um, were trying to get master's degrees in, but it wasn't really the kind of policy I wanted to do. Um, it was more like energy policy. It didn't really match. So I decided to just finish my dissertation and then, and then see, you know, see what the other part of the problem was. I think also, you know, probably even before I went to graduate school, but definitely when I was there, you know, if you wanted to do something useful, people would tell you is, oh, yeah, you get a PhD in science, you go become a professor, you work as a professor for 20 years, and then you become famous. And then they come and ask <laughs> you to do something in Washington, D.C., and you get to be on a committee or a this. Or that. So that was the, right. <laughs> the life path. Adam, you know that life path so well. <laughs> Except nobody's asked me to do anything in Washington, and I'm not that yeah, famous. But yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, but wait a second. So like, let's just say a few more words about the science because you did it like really quick. Like, Because what I remember of it is, is that it, it was about making the forecast better. I mean, you talked about how using it to make decisions, but the, but your research was not about the decisions yet. It was about, the, you no, got no. to that it's later, but it was, it was about the forecast. And so the question was, if you have a choice where to take the observation. So as you said, you're flying the plane, so you can put it where you want to put it. Where's the best place to put it that will make the forecast the best. It, it can be not at all obvious yeah. where you want to put the observations to get the best um, to get the best results. And as I recall, not only from your work but from others who have done this, that it's pretty hard. I mean, it it, it, yeah. it hasn't. I mean, when it's hurricanes, they know they want to get into the core of the hurricane pretty much. But when it's other kinds mm -hmm. of weather, I don't. You weren't particularly hurricane focused, were you at that time? Um, I think that was the idea and we were eventually oh, supposed to do some, but we had, I mean, but with the hurricanes, it would be taking, the equivalent would be taking observations around the edge, you know, the area so that you get the steering from right. the hurricane, right? Yeah. So um, I had the opportunity, like you said, I was doing a lot of modeling and also there was a field experiment where people right. were flying planes in real time to do right. this. Um, right. So Where? I had the opportunity to do that. Uh, I was in Newfoundland. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was the only, this is also not something you would do today, <laughs> where I got sent up to Newfoundland to spend time with a bunch of like 50-something-year-old men. <laughs> and it was yeah. just me. I was, um, yeah. there were the the plane, the pilot, couple pilots and a couple of um, people who were operating the equipment on the plane. 
And then I went up there and I was sort of the liaison there to help them decide where to fly the plane when other people were elsewhere. Right. Did you fly? Um, making the decisions. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we were only flying over storms, so it was all very benign. Um, in fact, I didn't really know what to do on the plane. And the guy who was there, you know, releasing the drop sons, which are the weather balloons that go out of the plane, mm-hmm. um, the instruments. I said, well, what? He's like, aren't you going to take notes about the weather? It's like, that's what people usually do. Like, okay. <laughs> like there's some clouds. Like we were, it was, we were always flying in, but you know, we were looking, flying in the area where people right. thought that there would be the information from that would influence the steering of the weather a couple of days later. So there was never really any interesting weather. In fact, I think we weren't allowed to fly in interesting weather because there were issues with air traffic control and so on. Right. So, um, so yeah, but it was really uh, interesting experience. And then I got to go to um, spend time a, a few times at the national centers for environmental prediction, where they actually run the forecast models right. In and DC so to see, or in like, yeah, yeah. yeah, so to try, see where this data we'd taken, you know, the data we taken, how does it go in the models? Does it improve the forecast? How does that all happen? Um, and then I did a part of my, most of my dissertation was using a simplified model to see what happens um, when you do this in kind of a context where you're running a weather model, you can really see what's happening Um, we sort of ran it with like a fake real atmosphere. So you could see what you did well and what you didn't do well compared to the fake real atmosphere. Whereas in the real world, there are all these complexities. Um, so I got to see both kind of the real world, like flying the plane, using the real data and the real model, seeing the real forecasts and then doing it in a simplified setting. Wouldn't you call that today an observing system simulation experiment? Isn't that what that is? Yeah. You have an you have an imaginary world and you make imaginary observations and make imaginary forecasts and see if it all yeah. works. Yeah. Yeah, and there's different terminologies related to that. Some people are, you know, a little picky about how they okay. but yeah, that's that's what it was. And the field campaign, I mean, I sort of had this I got to go on a field campaign too as a grad student and it feels like kind of a big deal. You're going to some different part of the world and doing something and then you get there and you're like, shouldn't I have been trained better? Like <laughs> you're sort of thrown in there and of course there are people who have a lot of experience there, right? Mm-hmm. But throw the grad students into these things. And that's, that's part of the education of being a grad student, right? Yeah. I mean, I think um, when I've talked to most other people about their field program experiences, there are other scientists there. Mm. So I think the one I was on there, there weren't. And so there was nobody but the pilots. No. So, so the main field program setting was elsewhere. It was in Ireland. We did have internet, but it was pretty iffy. I Um, see. And so it was really just me. So I did learn a lot of things, but it wasn't like, you know, I, what I picture, uh, and I guess I've been involved in some other field experiments where you go and there's all these scientists and they're talking about stuff and they're talking about this storm versus that storm. And what are we going to do? You know, and then there's like the, when you're not flying or you're on the plane, you're just hearing people talk about science. And it was not like that at all. Um, They were having those conversations elsewhere separated by, I don't know, six or eight hours or something. And I would just yeah. get an email, you know, an yeah. all text email. Um, but it was interesting for other reasons. Um, yeah. But the other thing I wanted to ask about, just to step back a minute again to your like choosing this project in grad school was, um, you said you wanted to do something relevant, wanted to do something, you know, that would matter for people, but that the climate policy didn't interest you. And yeah. so I wanted to talk about that a little more because that's not like other people who wouldn't have seen it that way at that time or now. Yeah. And so like I mean, you, 
how do you make that distinction or, you know? That's a good question. I mean, I think one thing, you know, when I was doing chemistry, I did research and the research was actually also computer modeling and lasers that grad students were doing. And it was looking Mm -hmm. at how electrons moved around in a molecule. And I found it really interesting to like try to figure this out, but you couldn't see it. It was seemed so abstract. And so I thought, well, weather is something you can see. I see. That was one thing. And maybe with climate, it wasn't like you couldn't see it in the same way. Maybe that was part of it. Yeah. I just think also um, when I went and visited graduate schools, I talked to people and I said, this, this is the kind of thing I'm thinking about. And I think two things. One is that there were a couple of students or recent students who had done hmm. sort of climate policy for their PhD. And it just seemed like really difficult that it took yeah. them forever to finish. Yeah. Um, they really had to find their own way, you know, create their own committee. And it was clear that they'd, had a lot of challenges because people didn't really, they wanted people to do more traditional science. And I think the other thing probably was I probably hadn't had the experience very much of talking to people about what they did in atmospheric yeah. and related sciences until I went to visit graduate schools. We, there were some of them where there were weekends when the students would come. Yeah. And so there you talk to 20 different students, you know, and all the graduate students and the professors. And so I really got to hear about the different kinds of things people did. And yeah. there were all these things I'd never heard of before that right. people were doing. Probably in that, those experiences of talking to different professors and students about the work they were doing, I heard more about what people did and mm-hmm. thought, oh, this sounds interesting to actually study what's happening in weather. Like it seemed like it was similar to what I'd done as an undergraduate, where you're kind of looking at how things interact in something. But instead of it being on a molecule, it was more like bigger and in the real world. Right. But I guess part of the reason I'm asking this is because, I mean, so you're describing sort of young Rebecca, but fast forwarding a quarter century, you know, you've been following up on this line of thinking ever since and have been one of the number of people who who do the things you do, or at least who do it with the kind of science background that you have. Yeah, You're still doing things that are about weather. I mean, they're about helping people use weather forecasts and know how to make decisions based on weather forecasts and communicate Mm -hmm. forecasts and all that kind of stuff. And surely there would have been opportunities for you to go in a more climate direction. A lot of people have done that, but it seems to Mm -hmm. me that you, 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 this, this, it's not just you 25 years ago, you still have this orientation and, and now it's, you know, you're much, you know, a lot more than you did back then. So it's not just a youthful, like it's a, it's a, yeah. it seems to be very conscious. So I'm just, I want to hear more about it. Yeah. So then after that, after graduate school, when I went, um, you know, even the options I was thinking about, you know, when I finished and then I came to NCAR where I work now as a postdoctoral researcher and said, I want to figure out what's this societal stuff. You know, most people there were doing that were doing this kind of work. We're doing it in the context of climate and climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, what were they doing before we? Um, you know, climate impacts. So, you know, drought and uh, oh. water resources and fisheries and, um, you know, climate modeling. And like figuring out how to help stakeholders use. Yeah, there wasn't the so much of that then. I mean, that sort of started around the time, I think around the time I finished my PhD. So there was, was work it? obviously going on, but that was when that was just growing. Was it like Um, impact projections or? Yeah, mostly impacts projections are just kind of looking at like, oh yeah, like when you have a drought, this fishery. 
I see. This uh-huh. thing happens or, you know, the climate impacts and climate stakeholder work was really starting to grow then. And I think I kind of looked around and thought, well, there's lots of people doing this other stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they don't need me. Like I'll just be one person doing all these different things that other people can do too. So I see. Uh, maybe that was part of it. And I don't know, maybe there was just something about weather in the here and now, I think that interested right. me more. I mean, over the years I have been involved in projects that do, you know, seasonal climate, decadal climate, climate change. Um, it's just not my main thing. Um, right. So what I do is bring more of a weather perspective into yeah. that kind of work, which I guess you kind of do as well. No, but not in the same way. I mean, you know, so I, so yeah, so, so I, so you came to NCAR. Okay. I forgot that you came to NCAR as a postdoc already having done the sort of quote unquote hard science PhD, but with an eye toward that at some point you were going to do the, some kind of socially relevant thing. And so you came to NCAR already knowing that and thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the difference I mean, there's a lot of differences from my trajectory, but I mean, what's the same is that we came through, you know, this, not the same institutions, but could have been the same institutions. I mean, not, you know, the well-known institutions in the same field with the same people around us and stuff. Mm-hmm. But first of all, I didn't get to doing anything societal until much, much later, until now almost. I mean, much, much later. I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking that way back then. I had a vague sense. I mean, I like I got into the field, you know, um, with a vague sense that it would be useful. It was actually Marit's idea, my wife. I know. I, would work in this field. Yeah. I think, isn't it in your book too? It's in my book. I give her credit okay. all the time because it's true. But, but you yeah. know, but other than that, I just wanted to do science. But all the other differences that I had role models. I mean, I started working with people and kind of doing what they did. And it, I haven't thought about it in these terms until you just saying it just now. But you really didn't, right? I mean, there yeah. was nobody... You had a you had a kind of invent a type of research out of nothing. Is that a, is that a fair statement? I mean, there was nobody. Yeah. I mean, we should say what it is that you're actually doing. We have to get to that right. and what you actually did then. But you know, you. I mean, I would describe it that way. I, I thought there were people doing what I was doing, what I wanted to do, and so I worked with them, and then and it turned they? out. Um, like Roger Pookie Jr. is one person that I worked uh-huh. with. Um, uh-huh. Mickey Glance, um, right. Eve Brentfest, okay. um, other people, Bill yeah. Hook. Um, there were people that were interested in these kinds of things. But um, when I started working with them, either they were doing things differently or they were focusing on different problems. So I did learn a lot from working with them. But I would say mm. that I did have to spend a long time kind of looking around to find what I wanted to do. So the way I did it was by working with people who were doing little bits and pieces of what I wanted to do and then learning from there and then eventually putting those pieces together. And did you Uh, have a well-formed idea of what you wanted to do and you just couldn't do it yet or you were just figuring it out? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I remember interviewing for my job at NCAR and saying, this is what I wanted to do. So, yeah, I mean, the way I start, at least as of 15 years ago, I started describing it was that there's all this information that atmospheric scientists have, that weather scientists have, mm. that people don't always get, and right. they don't know what to do and to make good decisions. So right. like Hurricane Ian is a classic example where oh, if you're yeah. a meteorologist and you study storm surge or hurricanes, you know what the risk is, 
But then what we know and what people understand, there's a gap there. And it seems like, you know, people use weather forecasts all the time, yeah. but that if we could just do that, some a few little things so that it would help people, yeah, you know, uh, there's a lot of complexities to that. Um, right. Really, there's a lot of reasons people make the decisions they do. And um, yeah. you see this in our own lives. Like, I'm yeah. sure we make decisions all the time that someone who's an expert in thinks are not the decisions we should be making. I think initially, I just felt like maybe there was this gap between meteorology and what the potential was and mm -hmm. all the things you see happening where everything from, you know, people get wet because they didn't know to bring an umbrella to... Mm they get stuck in the middle of a hurricane storm surge, terrified yeah. for their life. And they didn't know that was going to happen. And so right. that there was that science could do more and yeah. that really the science, a lot of the science was there. It was just a matter of how to like take it out of your brain and my brain and right. get it out there. I also had the experience when I was in graduate school, like for my dissertation, it seems like it's, pretty obvious that if you take more observations of a storm that you will improve the forecasts, but it's yeah. actually not true in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons. Right. Sometimes it gets worse. That's what I remember from your. Yeah. And actually when they first, work. when we first did all those field experiments, almost all the forecasts got worse <laughs> actually right. there's. And, and so um, maybe that was an experience and also in my undergraduate research, even to know that, to understand that, what seems straightforward on the face of it isn't and that science isn't the truth. Right. I don't know how to describe it, but it's not like its own truth. It's that there are people involved and they're yeah. bringing the information, how you interpret the information matters and the approach you take can influence what you end up with. The assumptions you bring in and the way you approach the problem really matters. And so that's, that's how I came to think of it, at least within the first few years, atmospheric scientists were trying to improve forecasts. Mm -hmm. And when they were doing that, they were thinking, oh, someone's going to use this. Yeah. But they didn't really know who was going to use it or how they were going to use it. And maybe if they knew that, right. they would be able to do the same research, but actually improve something that was a little bit more useful to someone. So. Right. I feel like this this insight has now been kind of mainstreamed and is more widely appreciated through not just your work, but also like the IRI and other people who say this, you know, you have to actually talk to people, you have to understand them. Had you studied or ever taken a class or something in what we would now call science technology studies, like philosophy of science or history of science or anything like that? Did you ever have any of that when you were young? Yeah, um, I took a science technology policy class at MIT. Did they get so into any of that? So they do some historical policy. What was that? Did they get into any of, you know, like no, Kuhn and, you know, this? I read all that stuff. So when I was a postdoc. Just I yourself? Yeah, yeah. I remember going to the library at yeah. the University of Colorado because that's when you, you know, yeah. I could go there and sit there and you could look at journals. And I actually remember sitting there and reading Kuhn. Right. So I did that. Um, I did take a, actually, I did take a class on um, at University of Colorado Boulder when I was a postdoc that. Yeah. did it was um it wasn't science technology studies but it was um kind of a policy class that had had the approach of it was in the policy sciences which is kind of a niche field but it's sort of thinking yeah. about outcomes and those yeah. kinds of things i mean i'd taken when i was in college i took psychology i took sociology i took right you know so i had taken right but those, not from the people who study science 
Because, but not know. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I, I, so I had a little bit, I had one class. And I think that, because the, the thing of, you know, science isn't the truth, it's human. I mean, that's a thing that all these people will, you know, that's, yeah. if there's this one sentence version of what yeah. all those people are, do, it's that. And, and I've come to think that it's a big failing of science education, especially at the, you know, advanced up to graduate, you know, undergraduate to graduate level that we don't require that because it's like, we're only teaching people how to do it and not why yeah. or what's going to happen to it after. And like everybody would benefit from that a little, even people doing pure research, I think would benefit from that a little. So I think so. I think also that I had experiences that I interpreted as learning how if you approach something from a different way, you see a different perspective in my own research. Like I remember as a graduate student, you know, when I, we had, there were these things happening, like you take data in a plane, you stick it in a model, it makes the forecast worse. That was happening. And I, then I was seeing things in my simplified system that showed how some of those things were happening. And I remember giving my first presentation, I'm, you know, or 23, a grad student, some early results, like to the people who were, you know, doing some of the forecasting and the forecast, the operational forecasting center. Yeah. And they, people would just say, that can't be possible. You must've done something wrong. Right. And so I would go back and be like, no, actually I didn't do something wrong. Like something's <laughs> really going on here. It's not, you know, when you're doing something in the real world, you can go through like, there's like the five easy things that like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, you put the wrong number in, the computer did this. And there's the 10 things below that that are like easy to fix. But then when you right. keep going through the layers and you realize actually it's fundamental. When they said you must have done something wrong, you mean because more observations made the forecast worse or that was about something else? Yeah, no, because oh, yeah. more observations. Because what I was finding was that it wasn't, because I had a simplified system where I could control everything, it wasn't all the things that, the easy things to look at. Like, oh, we just didn't get data about whether the forecast was better or not, or, oh, we just didn't, you know, get enough aerial coverage because we only got five, you know, observations in this area, but we really need to get a bigger area, those kinds of things. I mean, and don't you think that, I mean, about, you said something in there, I, I, I can't remember the words you used, but it was something like you were motivated initially by the idea that, you know, scientists know all this stuff, but it doesn't get through to the people somehow. I have the feeling you know, I'm not a forecaster. I don't do what you do, but I have been in the situation now a number of times when that media call me during mm-hmm. some extreme event. And, you know, I'm not a forecaster, so I'm not yeah. going to say anything that's going to contradict them. But they give the forecast in a very formulaic mm-hmm. and specific way that's calibrated for a certain set of users who are in some sense professionals. So I often feel that, especially in these extreme events, what somebody like me or you, if they were to call you, is sort of providing is a richer storytelling about the uncertainties, especially. And maybe uncertainties that some people say it's not the word we should use because it gives people the wrong idea. I don't know how, if you have feelings about mm-hmm. that. It's more about the range of possibilities and mm-hmm. the sort of whether that the forecast itself could be wrong in various ways when it's given deterministically or that you know, you, you could be in different location than exactly where the forecast was or all these different Mm -hmm. things. Do you think that's right? Or is there more to it? Yeah, I think a lot of that is right. I mean, I think that if you're thinking about what people will ask you, like, I'm actually not a very good forecaster. No, me neither. Yeah. And so, (laughs) but what I do know how to do is 
uh, one, I have, a, well, I guess you live in New York City, so you does, isn't as good for you, but I have a couple of thermometers outside my house and I have a thing inside that says, so I can be like, oh yeah, this one, but the sun's on that side and this time of day. And, you know, so instead of looking at the temperature, that's whatever my phone says, it's 10 miles away because the weather's so locally different in Colorado, I can say what it's actually, yeah. you know, is outside my house. Um, and I can teach my kids to predict the weather changes every day in Colorado. And there's so many temperature changes in the day to oh, be prepared wow. for that. And your kids are how old now? Um, they are 15 and 12 and 10. Oh, so are they good at it now? The weather forecasting? Um, well, I think they just really just wear shorts every day. (laughs) (laughs) But when it's going to be really snowy, I make them, I make them bring something. So, okay. So I want to, I don't want to drop the thread of like your life and career, but this discussion is making me think of two particular extreme weather events that I want to get your um, mm-hmm. take on and or experience of. So first of all, you brought up Hurricane Ian, which just happened. Yeah. I mean, by the time mm-hmm. we release this, it'll be months later. But as we're recording it, it just happened. And yeah. um, so you were talking about, you know, the motivation of your work and how people don't have all the information. But it seems to me that what happened in Lee County, the place got that got hardest hit by Hurricane Ian and where what if more than 100 people were killed by that storm surge is a different situation and I want you to explain from your point of view, please, what happened there, because I don't see how that is a case where it was a subtlety and they didn't understand the details. Because my understanding, tell me if I got this wrong, but this is what I read in a couple of places, is that Lee County local government had a set of guidelines that said, thought of in advance, like they knew it's hard to make these decisions in real time. They did the right thing. They planned. They knew they were in a high risk area. They thought it through, you know, I don't know, months, years, however long before, not in the event, that said, if the surge forecast this many hours or days in advance, I think it was two or three days in advance, or at least a day or two in advance, is X much or more from the National Hurricane Center, we will issue an evacuation order. And in the moment, the condition for that order happened, and they chose to ignore it, which was it violates the whole point of doing it. The whole point of doing it, right, is that You don't want to have it on you in the moment to make that judgment call. So you think it through beforehand when you're calm and then you just know you have to do it in the moment, but they didn't. What happened there? Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I have plenty of thoughts about it. I mean, I think that um, all places have these kinds of plans and then there is an element of judgment. Like that's why you have a human and emergency manager. Yeah. Obviously, in retrospect, we can say maybe they didn't make the right decision. But I think that's how disasters happen, that several things intersect to go wrong mm. and horrible things happen and that people can't really foresee everything. I mean, I can see how um, if you don't look deeply into the forecast and you don't understand what storm surge is, which they probably didn't, and they didn't understand the risk of what it could do that a lot of people there didn't understand that as well as probably the emergency managers. Um, but they had, a. I guess what I know, how, the way to, how I don't get that is that they had their trigger criterion was based on the surge forecast, which suggests that they didn't. Yeah. Well, um, someone knew, right? Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I heard something just to give one more thing that I read. Mm-hmm. I, one thing I saw, so again, I'm, this is like second or third hand faintly remembered, you know, read from some article that I'm not sure I'm remembering correctly, but it was that, that the school, they were either that people had to evacuate, the school was yeah, the yeah. evacuation center, 
And so the school had to yeah. be closed and the schools hadn't decided to close yet. But, but if you're going to have a trigger like that where the emergency manager is going to make an evacuation order, they should be able to close the schools. Like they should have the power yeah, so to tell the school, the school to close. So I think right? that they could have, right. So they didn't, I think they wanted to have the evacuation order and the shelter information released at the same time. Yeah. Whereas they could have issued an evacuation order and said, the shelter will be opening on this day at this time. But I think there's a lot of complexities that go into the evacuation decision-making. Yeah. We actually recently did a study where we worked, we talked to emergency managers about their decision timeline. And I think part of it is that you have to start really early because you have to start putting things in. You have to talk to the school district and say, you need to not have schools open in case we need to evacuate, have a mm. shelter. And then you need to have the red cross pull in their volunteers so that they, you know, who's going to open the shelter. So there are all these. So mm they probably didn't start early enough um, to do that. And it's just, I mean, if you mm. look at Hurricane Katrina, you know, there were plenty of plans in place. And a good forecast, right? A good forecast in both cases, yeah. I would say. People plenty say, oh, in Lee and in Ian, I mean, the forecast wasn't that good, but it was. They, they were within the cone from the, you know, from the beginning. Right. And it was, def I mean, if you know about storm surge, you know that side is oh yeah the worst side. And you know, in that part of Florida, it's at risk, but they didn't know that. And the people didn't know that. I also think there's this element, um, and I don't know the details of this, but about personal responsibility. So yeah. I looked at the Lee County website and their mm -hmm. evacuation information um, talks about how, you know, there's personal responsibility in evacuating. And so- mm -hmm. I think there's that element of it. Meaning that people should have done it even though they weren't told to? Or, or what does that mean? Personal well, I think it's just views of the government and should the government be telling people to do things and it's people's personal responsibility mm. to understand the risk and take care of themselves. And so, I mean, honestly, I don't, it'd be interesting to hear what happened to the people who actually made these decisions. Like what personal responsibility did they take? But um, yeah. Yeah, I think there's this element about, you know, the politics and the way people view the government and the way the government views themselves um, in some of these places. I know people at the National Hurricane Center and the Weather Service who are in those conversations with the emergency managers. And so they kind of know really what happened. But I mean, you've heard these mm -hmm. stories about Hurricane Sandy, about how the mayor of New York City initially did not issue an evacuation order. Yes. And some of the forecasters saw that and then they had, you know, they right. went in and were like, come on. Right. Like, yeah. So that happens all the time. In that case, I think that we know what happened, which was that they were mixed up by the designation of it as not a tropical storm. Right. Which, you know, is a screw up. But right. And so it's kind of the same. <laughs> right. And I think what, what often happens, too, and I've I've seen cases of this where it's like if you're the local person in the situation, you're doing 50 million things and, you know, who knows how many jobs right. they have. That's why the state of Florida and that's why the national government sort of helped with those examples of seeing the bigger picture, right. you know, to be able to say, oh, if we evacuate, everyone's going to be mad at me. We're going to have the local economy go bad because people are all going to leave, you know, to balance yeah. that against the l larger risk. And I've studied cases of, decision-making during extreme weather events where I've seen how that happens yeah. or doesn't happen. I mean, I think storm surge is just really hard, right? It's so localized and you can always believe it's not going to happen to you. Like, I think people really have a hard time imagining it could so, be that bad. So I know all that is true, but it just, what I keep, what it ke I keep seems to me to cut through that because it's supposed to cut through it is yeah. that's why they make these triggers so that the rules say, if the forecast is this, you do this. And that way, the emergency manager can't be blamed. If, the, if it doesn't happen, 
You know, yeah. they say, look, I follow the rules. That's what the rules say. I'm supposed to do it. You know, they can't, it's supposed to take yeah. it out of their hands so they don't aren't carrying that burden on themselves. But they're balancing other things like local economic disruption. And I mean, it's not really clear. I mean, more people would have evacuated. In retrospect, the evacuation order would have been a good idea, but some a lot of people still would have stayed and they still would have died. Well, that's another issue. So why people don't follow the orders and yeah. mandatory ones aren't really mandatory and all that. That's another can of worms. Yeah. But so are you yeah. going to study this case? Are you going to research this? Yeah, we, we had a survey that was in the field actually during Ian. Oh, yeah. So we have survey data. Mm. I've spent the last 15 years studying her, these kinds of situations. So in fact, mm. we have projects where we spent 10 years like working out the methods for how to do this, which is why we have this survey in the field. Yeah. Yeah, we, ha- we have this survey. Um, we've been analyzing Twitter data for other storms to see in kind of real time what people were thinking and how they were responding. Yeah. Um, so I'm finishing up a research paper right now in a past case, Hurricane Harvey, and kind of thinking, okay, how would you do this for Ian? So right. um, a lot of it depends on, you know, if we have funding to do it and yeah. um, what the kind of, um, you know, value of doing that versus other things. We've done storm surge predictability research. That's definitely relevant here. Yeah. Um, I know there's plenty of talk about it. So a tough thing to get across to people is that because everybody's afraid in these situations of, of making the call to evacuate or take some other high cost action. And mm-hmm. then the forecast doesn't, isn't the thing turns out not that bad and they didn't need mm-hmm. to do it. You know, the classic example from my experiences, you know, hurricane Irene, they issued the forecast was just as bad as Sandy a year before they shut down the subway. It was a bust. I mean, it turned out to be a bad event in other places, but in New York city, nothing mm-hmm. happened. And then when Sandy came, people weren't as afraid. So everybody's afraid of the cry wolf thing. And it seems to me that the tough thing to get across is that because the scientific information is inherently uncertain, you never can know exactly what's going to happen ahead of time. That means that if you're doing it right, if you're taking the strategy that's optimal for protecting people, it means that you are going to have false alarms. Inevitably, you're going to have false alarms. And so the challenge to get people to not see that as a screw up, right? But they do. Don't they? It depends. Some people do. Some people don't. I mean, there's definitely ways to frame it that um, it's not a screw up. And some people, I have a colleague a long time ago who studied a case like this, who said people saw it as a great chance to practice. I once talked to someone who um, was talking about a study where people had looked at um, tornado, uh, people have people sheltering from tornadoes mm-hmm. and how the cost of that time. And someone was like, oh, we just go to our basement. Like we hang out as a family, you know, we watch TV. It's like actually bonding, you know? So there's ways to, um, you know, think of it as a pre- good practice run. Um, yeah. I think in Florida they had had, you know, Charlie and Irma and other storms and that led them to, probably Michael, Hermine, other ones that had come to that area and it led them to think that, it wasn't going to be that bad, you know, probably Tampa people in Tampa are thinking the same thing right now. So, yeah, I mean, there, I think there's the uncertainty is inherent and there are always going to be false alarms and um, some people call them like near misses. Like it's not just like if you're in Tampa, you saw what happened in Fort Myers, like that that from a forecaster's perspective, two days in advance, that was equally plausible. And Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, you were just lucky that it didn't happen to you. It's, um, right. but I think the other one of the some of the work we've done, um, really, I think that for people to understand what can happen and kind of gear themselves up to prepare for the worst, 
Mm. It really takes time. You have to to go from like the day to day to realizing you have to go to another type of decision making, which is really like what's at risk and what is the worst case scenario that I need to protect against. It takes time for your mind to do that. Yeah. In cases I've studied, you know, if people are more prepared, like if they start five days ahead of time and really are like, oh, what might we need to do? So they can start to put things into place and have plans. So it's like, okay, well, it's not like, oh, we want to issue an evacuation order and the schools are still open, but thinking through like, okay, if we let the schools open today, what are our options if yeah. something changes, right. right? So that you're at different points and climate change is a perfect example of this where yeah. you don't want to close off your options until it's too late. Right. Uh, there were also some communication failures. I mean, I think that they didn't get the word out very well. In not the end, that, you mean? Uh, in, yeah. yeah. So they did issue an evacuation order and some people said afterwards they didn't hear it. You know, I mean, eventually they did it later than. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Later than in retrospect, they should have. And then, but the information didn't get out very quickly. The other thing is that, you know, emergency managers know, depending on the time of day, the time of day really matters. Like, you know, yeah. if you want people to evacuate in the morning, they, you know, it takes people a while to get all their stuff, decide what to do, figure right. out where to go. And so you, right. you know, if you tell them at night, they have a few hours and they get up in the morning, but by the, right. for right. some people, they just didn't have that lead time for decision-making. And I think what emergency managers will do in some situations is they'll start to prep people like, okay, you might need an evacuation. Yeah. Oh, they even do voluntary first so that people are starting to think about it. Right. So by the time it's really time. So there are these there, I think there are other things that could have happened to make sure people were ready you know, paying attention. Yeah. So at least when that, if they knew they weren't going to issue the evacuation order, people knew it might have to happen. Right. And so they could be ready. Basically what I'm saying is that the evacuation order itself is really important, but there's all the lead up and the follow-up. Yeah. I think that the preparing early is, is important, not just because of like the psychology you're mentioning of how it is effective, but also that as the forecasts get better and better, they start to have some skill at what used to be considered really long lead times. I mean, five mm-hmm. days, seven days. I mean, no one would issue an evacuation order five days in yeah. advance. But five days in advance, you could have a pretty good idea that there's a decent likelihood you might have to issue one. Certainly in Sandy, that was mm-hmm. the case. And so it's the way to use that skill mm-hmm. is to be able to have some partial message to say, okay, you know, don't do anything yet, but keep an eye on this thing. Yeah, there are some people for whom it's low cost to evacuate or it's, I mean, I once interviewed a person who when a storm comes like five days in advance, they fly to Las Vegas and take a vacation. So there, <laughs> get some of those people out early. You know, there are people who, if you're really electricity dependent, you yeah, know, you're right, the chances right. you're going to lose power for a long, for a Right, time people on medical time. machines and yeah. So those like people, like, it doesn't have to be like, flooding your house flooding and you're going up to your roof and hanging on to things right, for, right. You to, right. for you to no, evacuate. Right. No low regret. Yeah. Actions. So it's complicated to think back and learn from situations about what could be do- done better. Yeah. Okay. So Marshall fire. Yeah. We should probably, you should probably start by saying what it was because not everybody yeah. who might hear this would know or remember. Yeah. yeah so the Marshall fire happened in late December last 21, year. So yeah. 21. Yeah. yeah in Colorado. So it was winter, so not typical fire season. Um, mm. Typically, it would have snowed by then, but there had not been a snow. And so the ground was dry, grass was dry. There was a really, really windy day and a fire started. And within a couple hours, that fire entered what is essentially suburbia. 
and blew through a bunch of parking lots and, you know, crossed a six or eight lane highway and within a few hours burned a thousand houses. And once it got into the neighborhood, firefighters couldn't fight it, you know, got so hot, houses were exploding from the inside and the evacuation orders were very piecemeal. I think the emergency managers and the firefighters didn't know where the fire was going. They didn't know where it was. So that's what happens when things get bad. You don't even know what's happening, much less what's going to happen. And you're just scrambling. And it happens super duper fast, right? I mean, it, yeah, it wasn't yeah. like it was not a situation where there was forecast days before. It was really fast, is my right? No, I mean, there were the wind was forecasted. Okay. Just to, they thought there was a likelihood of it. I think the winds mm-hmm. were very, really extreme. Yes, I remember. So the fire came from west to east, you know, winds 100 miles an hour blowing from west to east. And I live one block east of where the fire stopped where I live. Well, yeah. I had left a couple of hours beforehand because I didn't, I knew there was a fire, but I didn't think it was going to get to us, but I knew there was smoke. And so we left a, a hour or so before it got bad in our town. Like people were driving under flames. They were leaving and seeing what was on fire. Yeah. So they watched their houses burn on TV. It was the most expensive fire in Colorado history. Yeah. The fire started, I think, at 11 a.m. It was probably in the town, you know, right next to us in our town, maybe yeah. 1, 1 30 p.m. Right. And by midnight, you weren't allowed back, but people could come back and it was it was right. no longer spreading. And then it snowed the next day. So it was all, and most things that burned, burn within the first, I would say, six to eight hours. Maybe a couple of houses caught after that. If I remember what I read, the neighborhood doesn't even have that many trees. It was like kind of grass and houses, basically. It was, is that right? Or- yeah, it was mostly houses. I mean, I don't think the fire, the fire sort of went through the grass. And then, um, you know, once it catches a bunch of houses on fire, yeah. Um, I think one thing is that it's so hot. Yeah. Um, like the firefighters we talked to was, you know, they said they couldn't even go near a fire hydrant because it was so hot. Right. Um, where I live, which is just east a little bit downhill. And so it was actually yeah. cold where we were. Uh-huh. The water they were trying to fight the fire with was blowing off from the west of us and landing as ice. Wow. Um, where they were fighting the fire where we were. Wow. Um, but then also when you have 100 mile an hour winds and you have basically a house, you know, it's on fire. You have, you know, chunks of stuff that's just hitting everything. Yeah. And so like what the firefighter said is you know, you have a chunk of house and it's burning and then it's got a screw inside it and that's really hot and that lands on something. And so um, basically had this continual onslaught of things that could catch something else on fire. And then it was also so hot that things started spontaneously combust from the inside. So the people who lost their houses, and this is like, you know, a block from us, there's nothing Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen photos of it. They're incredible. Yeah. Yeah. They're... um, You know, there's melted glass, their fire safes are incinerated. I want to know like what you knew when, and, you know, do you think that you reacted to it differently than anybody else would have because you're an expert? And also like when you bought this house, did you perceive that it was a high risk area? My sense is that on some level, everybody kind of knows there's fires in Colorado, but this is not like a high forest fire. I know it was very, very, very high winds. It's a very unusual event in that respect. Yeah. Did you learn anything from this? You know, that as a professional that you, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, no, I mean, we wouldn't have thought our high, 
how was house was at high fire risk. In fact, when we moved into our house, it had wood shake shingles on the roof. So mm. the whole neighborhood was built with wood shake shingles. And I remember our mm. real estate agent saying, eh, maybe you want to get that replaced at some point. <laughs> and then um, there was a big hailstorm, And so everyone had to replace their roofs. So yeah. some of them had wood shake shingles. Um, I mean, the, you know, firefighters houses burnt people that had sprinkler systems or had done major fire mitigation. You know, there were some houses where right, right. And there was nothing you could have done. Right, right. And then the fire sort of went through the grass. Right. Nothing you could do except not live there. I mean, this was... <laughs> yeah, but if you look around, like after this, the way they build neighborhoods is there's like a grass field, you know, it's a park. Yeah. And they're, you know, leave it open for prairie dogs and, yeah, you know, bobcats to foxes to live and play. It's like sort of, you know, natural and... Um, yeah. There's also, I think it was difficult to get staffing the summer before. So they stopped mowing some places just because they couldn't hire people to mow the grass. You know, oh. so there's even things like that. Because of the, to the pandemic. pandemic. Yeah, stuff, yeah. Um, that relates to it. So um, even when the fire started, I mean, I did hear about it because I do some of this kind of stuff. Yeah. I was getting, people were asking me about it or saying, oh, I hear the fires over where you are. Where is it? So I knew that there was a fire. I think the idea that it would ca- uh, cross what is basically a bunch of really large suburban strip malls was not really that believable. And so um, I didn't talk to that many people, but I remember like when it was actually happening, actually this is my daughter had, it was the holidays and she had used my phone to talk to a friend. And so she had used most of the battery. So when we left her house, I wouldn't have good cell phone communication because I didn't have much battery and I couldn't find my charger Uh. for bunch of car charger for a bunch of complicated reasons. So I was limiting my communication because I knew I had limited battery, but um, there were some people who were like texting me saying, asking like, what's going on? You know, I heard this is happening. Should I be worried? And I said, no, I even remember when the evacuation was announced, someone was like, this must be really bad. And I said, they would not evacuate people to drive through the middle of a fire. Like they must be ahead of it. Yeah. And it's amazing that it wasn't worse. Yeah. Like they, they didn't, they didn't, um, they evacuated the whole town at once because they didn't know what else to do. Let's get back to your, the rest of your career. Cause it, we sort of got only got up to your postdoc, which was a long time ago. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've been at NCAR ever since mm-hmm. my perception is that you've been doing broadly the same kind of work, work that's about, communicating, using forecasts, making them usable, saving lives and property, you know, with a social science component, I mm-hmm. think to some people in the field, you sort of look like you've become a social scientist, although you've told me you haven't. <laughs> and then your training is not originally that. What should we say about this time? How should we characterize or what, what, what story should we tell? Yeah, I think over the last 10 or 15 years, especially most of my research has focused on weather risks and decision-making or weather risk communication and decision-making yeah. that includes connections to atmospheric science. So I don't do a lot with that, but I do have some projects that are connected to, you know, what is predictable, especially when you think about yeah. coupled hazards like storm surge. So if people need to want to know what to do, they don't just need to know, Oh, there's a hurricane coming. They need to know, mm-hmm. is it going to be high winds? It's going to affect me. Is it going to be storm surge? And so there's some work with that kind of thinking about what's predictable as well as bringing that knowledge in about what's predictable, what the atmospheric science community can do, what the potential is. 
what are the realistic limits into thinking about um, how you communicate that information and how people understand it and make decisions. But a lot of it really works backwards from what can people do to protect themselves and how do they make those decisions? And given that, are there points of intervention where you can communicate the information better or produce better information that would help inform those decisions? Yeah. I mean, it's my perception that although you've trained people and you work with a lot of people, you know, you have a lot of collaborative projects with wide spectrum of people. I can't think of anybody that's like, has your profile yeah. physical scientist who's gone strongly in this direction and you know and who's not doing climate yeah i mean i would say that i mean i think some people dabble in it i think there are more people now who are being trained who might have an undergraduate degree or a master's degree in meteorology yeah. that then have a phd or work doing social science so i have a few people i work with now and that's really amazing because when they see something a forecaster says you know they understand it they know why yeah. it's happening all those kinds of things what have been for a long time people focusing on hazards and disasters research yeah um, so a lot of that's in the response and recovery process yeah. there were there have been some people for a long time that have looked at right. um, decision making related to weather and communication yeah um a lot of that work was 30, 40 years ago when the information yeah. was much simpler. Right. Um, so you just got like a warning, you know, some kind of text thing. Yeah. Or, you know, um, so things have changed a lot. But um, so there, there has been work along those lines. But yeah, there's a lot of work now on weather decision making in the yes. social science community, a growing, yes. a growing area. So, yes. I mean, I guess um, the reason I'm dwelling on your uniqueness is that, yeah. is that, is that it's not like you're doing some niche weird thing that nobody gets. It's the opposite of that in a way, right? Noah knows this topic is tremendously important. The weather service knows it's tremendously important. The emergency managers know it's tremendously important. Social scientists know it's tremendously important. So in some way, I think it has something in common with some other areas, including in, in, in applied work and climate, where the topic's really important, but it's not... There just isn't a tradition of people coming from this hard, to put in yeah, quotes, yeah. scare quotes, the hard science side mm -hmm. of the field. So it has to be an individual like you who decides to yeah. do that. But somehow that connection isn't there. And maybe it, it should be. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I think there aren't that many people. And I, I wouldn't say it's a problem, but I think it could be done better. I also think what's interesting for me is that I don't really think of what I do as applied. Mm. Um <laughs> I mean, it is but relevant. It's, but it's connected to a side of the field that is applied. In other words, there's applied problems and, there, and then you need a basic side to kind of support exactly. it. You know? So there's an application relevance. What I really do is try to under the same way when I was an atmospheric scientist doing right, right. and I was trying to interaction. So now I'm just like, when I was a chemist, I was looking at right. how the little electrons were bouncing around and what was going on in a lot of depth. So now it's like, okay, right. I really take a problem and go deep into it to understand the fundamentals. And so I think that that's, it right. is really important because like at NOAA or the weather service or the places that do the more quote unquote applied where they're doing the communication, they just don't have the right. flexibility to be able to take a step back and say, what's the bigger picture? To take that analogy, yeah. right? The forecast itself is an applied thing, right? People are, weather forecasts mm -hmm. are making a forecast to give it to people who are not professionals. That's an applied thing, but it's, connected to 
a science enterprise that studies somewhat more abstract versions of the problem, right? And what I'm saying is in this area that you're in, you're kind of out on your own in being that, right? So it's there's an applied problem that needs the basic side. That's what you're providing. But it's somehow, unlike the pure physical science part, it's not there so much. And so there's a cultural, yeah. I think that's a cultural issue yeah, within, the, yeah. within the field. I agree with you. And I, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, though. I think that Good. What are the they? incentives for doing it are, <laughs> there's a lot of counter incentives. I mean, even if, you know, I've, I've been to workshops on interdisciplinary research, not necessarily related to what I do directly, but in mm-hmm. a variety of fields. And, you know, if you talk to professors at universities, even if they want to do this, there's so many barriers to doing it. There's so many disincentives. You know, the best way to get ahead if you're in a research career is to publish a lot of papers. Yes. And get a lot of citations. And the best way to do that yes. is to do something that other people are doing. Yeah. And to not buck the trend. It takes a lot longer to learn right. new things every time. People aren't citing you if right. no one else is doing it. <laughs> right. So right. Um, you do publish papers, but maybe if nobody else is yeah. doing it, there's nobody just, I, I don't know. I haven't, I didn't look at your citation yeah. statistics, but. But it's, it's okay. true but that I mean, if I were doing climate change, I would have a hundred times as many citations. There's so many other people doing it. Right, right, right. Yes. It's interesting when I first started doing this, you know, the first 10 years, I hardly ever got even pay. I got papers to review that were atmospheric science papers, but not papers in weather and risk communication right. and decision-making. Now I get papers all the time. You, to probably, review, get, but you probably get all of them. <laughs> no, I don't. But I'm sure there's plenty to go around, but it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it was interesting when it finally went like, oh, other people are doing this. That's how I know. Cause I'm getting papers. Right. To so, yeah. And how does it like, and what's your experience of doing it within an institution where, um, you know, most people are doing other things? Yeah. I mean, I think there's been good things and difficult things. Um, yeah, I think that NCAR gave me the opportunity to do this when I didn't really know what I was doing or how I was going to do it. Um, so that was amazing. Um, I don't think I would have had that opportunity somewhere else at the time that it happened. Mm. Um, and I think I've been really lucky to have people that have been supportive of me, including atmospheric scientists. Most of my mentors have been atmospheric scientists, at least at my institution, who don't have don't really understand what I'm doing a lot of the time. But they can still mentor me and kind of trust that I can find my own way and do good work. And so I have been successful in terms of being able to have a career and being promoted, which mm-hmm. I wasn't sure would be the case. Um, I think there is still challenges in that, um, you know, in the atmospheric science community or what you would call the hard sciences. You know, some people do still think that the not hard scientists are a threat to basic science or a threat to good science, not as hard, not as important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of these beliefs are actually not consciously held, they're unconsciously held. And so that makes it more challenging, mm-hmm. just like the same, mm-hmm. you know, biases against gender and race and yes. other things, right? Yes. If pe- once people realize they have those beliefs and they can at least right. think about whether or not they believe them, but when they're embedded, it can come out in ways that are complicated and yes. can be hard to figure out what's actually going on. And then there's a bit, you know, like, there's a lot of institutional inertia and those kinds of things. 
the gender and race thing is not uncoupled. My understanding is that there are studies that actually show that people doing more usable mm-hmm. work, which is kind of what we're talking about, mm-hmm. that the people doing that tend to be less white and male, for example, than, yeah, I than think the, that's the rest true. of the field. And I think within, you know, my institution, NCAR, you know, for the last 10 years, we've been getting students and, you know, all kinds of people saying they want to do this kind of work. And so yes. it's that it's just like a generational thing. And so when you go to a yes. generation, you get people who are more diverse. But I think there also is a yes. tendency that, I mean, but that's one thing that's been talked about where I work is if you want to attract the quote unquote next generation of more diverse atmospheric scientists, a yes. lot of them are interested in doing useful things. I think the generational thing is broader than that. Mm-hmm. I think there's it's the prominence of climate in the mm-hmm. in the media now and the just general politicization of everything and all yeah. the crises. And I just think the young generation is coming in very idealistic. And in some sense, I want to say to them, like, I, I, mean, I don't want to tell people don't do a PhD if this is your orientation. I don't I don't want to discourage people, but it but I wonder sometimes if it's the most effective yeah. way to achieve the goal. I think also, I mean, your kids are a little bit older than mine, but they hear just so much about this stuff now. Like I I remember one of my kids, my oldest, when he was about eleven, he was something where they were someplace where they were doing something on climate change. He's like, Oh again, we already know all about this. You know, like that stuff is everywhere. You know, he it was talks about the same way that, you know, in school they tell them about like social media and not posting mean things about other people and using technology wisely. Yeah. But I also think when we were young, I mean, there was a legacy of the 60s and that had various, the 70s. I mean, I grew up in the 70s and like in 80s and there was problems that it was just, I don't know, although I couldn't, wouldn't have seen it this way at the time, but in hindsight, it looks like it was just a more optimistic, there wasn't this sense of crisis that I think these kids have now. Yeah. I mean, is there, has interest grown or changed or? You know, is what you're doing perceived yeah. differently than a few years ago? I think it is that versus 10 years ago. I don't know. In the last few years, it's hard to gauge. But yeah, no, definitely. There's a lot more people ranging from, you know, graduate students who are getting a PhD in atmospheric science, but they would love to have some part of their dissertation do this to people who are undergrads, who are thinking about what they want to do and they want to do this. How do they get into it? You know, all mm-hmm. kinds of things or, you know, professionals who are trying to do those kinds of things. I mean, I think the, where I really see it is in NOAA and the National Weather Service, how they really um, have now really, you know, talk a lot about the importance of communicating and decision-making and, you know, those kinds of things in social sciences. So, so how do you perceive, I mean, we started on this or not started, but we talked about this a while ago. I mean, your decision to sort of focus on the short timescales and not climate. I mean, how do you think about that now? I, I, you know, I imagine if you were to do things that looked more climatey, you know, there'd be a lot of opportunities and funding yeah. and so on. Do you, is that a conscious choice not to, or do you feel that you are doing it in a way? Because, I mean, I could make a case that in a sense you are yeah. because these extreme events are the leading edge anyway. And, you know, Oh yeah. Yeah. Is that how you see it or? I, I do um, in that, right, I think, I, I mean, I think we've been able to tell for 10 or 15 or more years that extreme events in the, cli- in the climate context are going to be right. extremely important. And so in that way, I feel like I've con- I'm contributing. I do do some work in that area. I think 
don't know. I think a lot of it feels like there's um, just not that much, you know, there's only so much time in the day to do different things. And so, right. you know, if I had like five of me, I would love for one or two of them to be doing right. climate change, but I only have so much time. Right. And I also think that I did have this experience in my dissertation where the field I was working in was new and there were hardly not that many people doing it. Yeah. Like there was not people doing data assimilation, which more people do now and this yes. targeted observations. And I would go, you know, we have these small workshops. It was 10 people, the same 10 people, yeah. you know? And so having that experience where you feel like, not like you're on the front edge of something, but also that, um, yeah, I don't know how to describe it really, but um, maybe it just goes back to kind of, being an introvert and which I know a lot of scientists are, but I don't think like going to a big conference and schmoozing is like my big thing, my biggest talent. And so to have my own space, not my own space, but a space that's mm. smaller, maybe mm. feels just feels familiar. All right. I've kept you a while. Is there anything else we, we should be talking about that we didn't talk about? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, thanks for giving me this opportunity. It's, Exciting oh, no. to be on here along with no. the Thank you. many people who have done it. And um, yeah, I guess just one thing is if people are listening to this, like I do have people tell me now that having seen me and other people kind of do what they wanted to do, the kind yeah. of thing that they are interested in, you know, really helps them know it is possible as yeah. well as, you know, being female, I'm female scientist, yeah. I've got kids, you know, that's the kind of thing that there yeah. are people like that now. And there weren't as many when I was a kid, when yeah. I was a kid, there weren't that many women scientists and most of them yeah. didn't have kids. Yeah. Um, and that's a path I wanted to take. And so just that yeah. there are lots of options. And I think, um, yes. I think also, I don't know if you see it this way, but I think that like when we were kids, you thought about like, oh, you have a career and you just do that thing. Right. right. But now there's so many opportunities and, you know, to be able to try something and then, you know, it's okay to try something and you don't expect it to be the next 40 years of your life. Um, but sometimes it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I didn't think that I'm like, Oh, I'm just going to try this thing for a few years. And then right. right, sometimes it is the next 40 years of your life. Thank you, Rebecca. It was wonderful. Really appreciate your taking the time and uh, yeah. Um, keep doing it. Yeah. Thanks. You too. I hope you have a good rest of your trip okay come on visit us again i will yeah i don't know maybe not this summer i don't know but yeah i'll be there hopefully sometime soon yeah but okay come to new york yeah okay yeah i'm sure i Thanks. will <laughs> all right bye yeah even when you've known someone as long as rebecca and i have it's amazing how much you don't know sometimes. That's the thing about these conversations. You turn on the microphones and you have a kind of talk that you wouldn't normally have. So I got so much out of that one. Hope it worked for you too. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor, post-producer, and audio engineer is Eugenio Gonzalez. And my creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.